Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Listening to the Luke Haskell Show on the Four Persons Network. Luke takes a deep dive every show into history, theology, and scripture. If you want to truly be educated, make way for the hammer of heretics himself, ladies and gentlemen, Luke Haskell. Tonight we're getting into part two of the Gospel of John, and you know we we did Matthew, and you know we kind of you and I kind of uh, both agreed on the conclusion that Matthew is building a case as to who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. He's the King, and Matthew is building a case. John's giving us a catechism. John's giving us a theology <laughs> lesson, step by step. And in chapter one, chapter one was all about the Trinity. And uh, and and the lesson continues, uh, starting with with chapter two. And uh, go ahead and take it away. Yeah, chapter two. It's it's uh, probably one of the shortest chapters in the book, but it is very very powerful. And it's almost designed to simply isolate this this image of uh, of this wedding feast, which is fulfilled in uh, you know our our holy mass celebrated with heaven itself and our union with God. And uh, like we were talking about before, uh, I think there's a possibility that 
you know, these apostles were so filled with the Holy Spirit that uh, a lot of things they put down on paper, you know, the Holy Spirit was guiding them to the point where they might not have even known the uh, you know, the the actual uh, impact on uh, on people when it comes to the spiritual significance of what they were actually writing and that impact felt, you know, for 2,000 years and how uh, God would lead us by putting this seamless fabric together to these incredible mysteries in such simple words. And it's like Origin explained when, uh, last week when we were talking about uh, uh, the book of John, saying that you could read this and simply look at the words, and it tells a story. I'm basically paraphrasing from Origin what he's trying to say. And uh, but the thing is, no one knows the, the 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 true understanding of this and the true depth of it even though it, it, it's, it's simply written words. And he says this in the context of our spiritual mother. He says that unless you become another Christ, unless you have uh, had that connection of the spiritual mother that Jesus has, then you won't be able to understand these things. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a pretty bold statement, but uh, as we read, I, I think people will begin to see where we're going. Mm-hmm. You know, an analogy that just popped in my mind, and, and I mean, it just instantly popped in my brain as, as you were talking. Um, you and I live on opposite sides of the country. So when when we say that we have been to the beach, we're talking about two different beaches, okay? So <laughs> I've, I've been to Chesapeake Bay. I've been to Virginia Beach and looked out upon the Atlantic Ocean. So my image of the Atlantic Ocean is what I've seen from, from the beach and, and you know, your you in retrospect it would be it would be the Pacific Ocean. But our image of the Atlantic or Pacific Ocean is what we've seen, you know, from the beach. That's our image of it. Um, in November I'm gonna have a completely and totally different image of the Atlantic Ocean because I'm going to be crossing it in an airplane. And yet, even then, it'll be a much broader image, but it still is doesn't even scratch the surface because when you look at the depth of the Atlantic Ocean and all the light that's inside of the Atlantic Ocean that all of us never see, I think Scripture is like that. That we, yes. we we look at it and we see the light gleaming off the surface of it. It's beautiful, it's enchanting, but we don't it what we don't see is far more than what we do see. Yeah, what we talked about that bottomless well of love, a love story between an imperfect bride and a perfect groom. And that, that that's how I sum up the uh, the whole message of scripture. Mm-hmm. So we'll start at uh, chapter 2, John 2, 1 through 5. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the marriage. And the wine failing, the mother of Jesus saith to him, 
they have no wine. And Jesus saith to her, Woman, what is that to me and, and to thee? My hour has not yet come. His mother saith to the waiters, Whatsoever he shall say to you, do ye. This is so amazing. Mm. After John shows that Jesus is God, he immediately begins to show us what lamb. He is not developing a case like Matthew, but simply asserts it. Uh, this is God, and now I'm going to show you the true Passover God established. The same Passover that is in the mystical imagery of uh, my vision of Revelation, John would say. This is an image he had in his mind before he wrote his gospel. And who is the wedding feast, which is a precursor to the wedding feast of the Lamb? God and the mother of God into time in the beginning of the magisterium of the Catholic Church. Who assists with the wedding? God and the mother of God. Mary must have known that Jesus could perform miracles because she knew that Jesus did not come up, come with a wagon full of wine. And John wrote, and the wine was failing. The mother of Jesus said, they have no wine. And Jesus, Jesus says to her, woman, what is that to me and to thee? My hour is not yet come. So Mary makes sure the groom and the bride have what is needed for the wedding feast. Why did Mary, a person among all of the guests and relatives, feel responsible for this? Why was it Mary spoke out about a need for the celebration and the marriage? Most likely because the Holy Spirit compelled her to do so. She says, my soul doth magnify the Lord. We know that later Jesus will, as, as John wrote in John 6, show us how the true wine that is being discussed in a spiritual way is the glorified blood of Christ that flows through the whole vine of the church, the true blood of the grape. Covenant comes from the ancient Semitic word barit. It means to cut a covenant or a sharing of blood uh, in a blood oath between two parties. In the oath, the true marriage between God and man is a sharing of his glorified blood in our oath to live obedience to the faith of the gospel. Therefore, at the establishment of the, of the true Passover and wedding feast of the Lamb, Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant. Do this. In the of uh, the wedding feast, John makes sure that Mary is not addressed as mother here, but as woman. Woman, what is there between me and thee? This is a very peculiar exchange. Is Jesus saying that she has little to do with him here? No, that would not make sense because after Jesus says, uh, says this, he says, my hour has not yet come. So Mary does not see Jesus' words as a put down or the end of the conversation but prepares for a miracle. She said, do whatever he tells you. So we have to get off the surface and go much deeper into this exchange, or else we will glance over some of the most beautiful exchanges between Jesus and his mother, showing Jesus' devotion to his created mother, perfect creation. Now, first Jesus, in establishing his church, is reestablishing the kingdom of David in the sacramental form. 
James showed us this in Acts 15. Actually, Luke showed us what James was doing. <laughs> but Paul tells us, is not the cup of benediction that we bless, participation in the blood of Christ, or participation in the new covenant, the mystical body of Christ? The types show us the spiritual imagery of the heavenly realities. And in the type of the old covenant kingdom of David, Solomon set a chair to his right for his mother, making her queen mother. And the words that Solomon said to her are not simple conversations in scripture written down for no particular purpose. So Solomon's mother was Bathsheba. And what did he do and say? I'll read it. Then Bathsheba came to Solomon to speak to him, for Adonias and the king arose to meet her, and bowed to her, and sat down upon his throne. And a throne was set for the king's mother, and she sat on his right hand. And she said to him, I desire one small petition of thee. Do not put me to confusion. And the king said to her, My mother asked, for I must not turn away thy face. So what do we see in this exchange, which is a precursor to the true wedding feast of the Lamb? We see the king, who has set a chair to the right of him in a position of power for his mother, who after addressing her as woman, which gives us the image of the true Eve, mother of all the living, which gives us the image of the queen mother, we see in Revelations, that we see in Revelations 12, even though he says it is not yet his time, it is not yet his time to begin his ministry and reveal himself, he does exactly what Solomon did and did not despise her petition. How more powerful of an intercessor can you have than the one who changes the plans of the Son of Man through a humble request? And the king said to her, My mother, ask, for I must not turn away thy face. We discussed in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is the true Moses, establishing the true exodus of baptism into the true land flowing with milk and honey of the, true, uh, of the truth and of the sacrament of life. Jesus' first miracle was a type of transubstantiation. Moses' first miracle was a type of trans transubstantiation. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Luke, if you, if you boil down these, these first five verses and just summarize it, there's three three things that jump out. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And the wine failing, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And the mother of Jesus said to the guest, do whatever it is he tells you to do. Not only do we need to understand that this is not accidental, that, uh, that Jesus and Mary use this language, it's also not accidental that John places this miracle here. This is actually one of my favorite gospel scenes because we can almost see the, the tender exchange between Jesus and his mother when he asks, well, what does this concern have to do with us? And she gently responds, do whatever he tells you. Now, some say that he was almost dismissive of her request, but she seems dismissive of his resistance. As if to say, <laughs> I, I'm his mom, don't worry, he'll do what I ask. It doesn't it's add just, up. 
it, it's just a tender, you know, beautiful, beautiful moment. And the importance of this passage is shown in the way that John presents it. Chapter one was all about Jesus. It was all about his, his uh, Jesus Trinitarian uh, identity. However, John takes it in a different direction here. The first person he presents to us at the wedding in Cana is not Jesus. It's Mary, then Jesus and his and apostles. So just like in Luke's gospel, where we see Mary first, then Mary brings us Jesus, the same thing is happening here. This is a point that should not be missed. Mary is presenting Jesus to us again, this time in his ministry. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And for a little more perspective on Jesus calling Mary woman, I want to read from the uh, for, for, from a site, uh, Alicia site. Uh, according to Father John Mayo, the word for woman used in this context in the original Greek is in what is called the vocative case. When the noun woman is used in such a way, it always meant as a term of respect or endearment. One scripture scholar explains the Greek word used is more like the word ma'am or lady uh, than the word woman as, as we use it. More, however, while Jesus may have been addressed as mother in a respectful manner, why didn't he call her mom? Many scripture scholars point to another passage in the New Testament to explain Jesus' word choice. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says to the crowd, who is my mother and who are my brethren? The stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brethren. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In this way, Jesus wanted to emphasize that faithful adherence to the gospel message is what is most important, transcending the physical bonds of family. Another way to understand this word choice is that when Jesus addressed his mother at Cana, he wanted to show that his mission on earth was not aimed at performing miracles for his family members, but for the salvation of the whole world. In this way, Jesus did not respond to his mother's request because of his familiar ties, but because it was accord with the will of God. Additionally, many scholars connect Jesus' usage of the word woman to the first woman, Eve. In Genesis, God says, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and your seed. He shall bruise your shall bruise his heel. The Virgin Mary is often seen as the new Eve who crushed the head of the serpent by her faithful obedience at the Annunciation when the angel Gabriel said she would bear the Messiah. In this context, Jesus seeks to confirm his mother as the new Eve and hold her up and her instrumental role in the salvation history. Last of all, Jesus uses the word in his last moment before dying. He says, John, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. This again points to something deeper. It is believed that Jesus used woman in this way to show how the Virgin Mary is not simply his own mother, but the mother of us all. Entrust her to us the beloved disciple, and encourages us to call her mother. I mean, did he only love only one? Why would he use the word on who he loved? Right. Because we were all beloved disciples. We were all called to take Mary as our own. Right. 
And, and woman is indeed the tie that binds here. Mary is, is seldom called Mary in Scripture. In testimony, typology, and prophecy, in Genesis 3.15, she's prophetically called woman. In 1 Kings and Psalm 45, she's foreshadowed as a queen. In Luke 1, she's called Kekeratomene, and she's hailed as royalty with the term Kere, which the modern equivalent would be uh, your majesty or something along those lines. She is the woman who does God's will in Luke. She is the woman who is the mother of the blessed disciple, as you just alluded to in John 19. She is the woman clothed with the sun in Revelation. So clearly scripture is showing her to be of eminent importance. Yeah, definitely. And before we move on, I want to deepen this image of why Mary would be addressed as lady. The word for honor in Semitic is, is kabodah. It means to glorify. Honor your fathers and mothers was understood by the Jews as to glorify your fathers and mothers. The English does not do it justice. Uh, it, was, it was why Jewish children kneeled in front of their, their parents. Protestants lost the image of this humility through their anti-Catholic construct of separation from the religion and ritual in the covenant. Christ fulfilled the law to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, if he did not glorify his mother as only a, the, you know, the God-man could, then he would not have been a perfect example of righteousness. In Matthew 3.25, Jesus says, Suffer it now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus was the perfect example of the true nature of the law. So he right. fulfilled the law perfectly in glorifying his own mother. And Jesus glorified his mother in ways that it would be impossible for us to glorify our own mother. We, we may love our own mother. We may uh, glorify our own mother, honor her. But Jesus did something for his mother that we wouldn't be capable of doing for ours. And that is the fact that Mary is the only human being that was with Jesus in some fashion from his conception to his ascension. Every phase of his life, every phase of his of his earthly existence, Mary was present. And she's the only person who can say that. Um, and I think we'd be crazy not to take notice of that as something very significant. To think that Christ in perfect righteousness and perfect love, who whose mother participated in our salvation by her sorrows at the foot of the cross would not also have a role in our salvation until the end of time. Just, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Well, I mean, what you just, you just hit on a point that's just so important. Um, Anyone who's ever seen uh, a loved one die, um, it's not an easy experience. Uh, and to see a loved one die in such a horrific uh, way as Jesus died, uh, and, and then you hear people just diminish it, like Mary's just a role player. Like she, well, Mary, you know, Mary... 
she gave birth to him, and that's and that's and that's it. Uh, she was at the foot of the cross, Luke. <laughs> she was at the foot of the cross. Well, all of the disciples, save one, ran. She was at the foot of the cross. She was with him every step of the way um, at Calvary. And I mean, let's face it, she was a woman. She was a human being. Can't even comprehend the grief and sorrow that she went through watching her 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 son. Uh, suffer and die the way that he did. That, that makes me think of uh, Simon at the at the christening, and he gave prophetic words that uh, Jesus would be a sign of contradiction, which is the cross. And to Mary, he says, "And a sword shall pierce your heart, so that any hearts thoughts may be revealed." Well, that's the mystical body of Christ. That's mm-hmm. our rosary. The thoughts of Mary, the, the through through the pierced heart of Mary, thoughts of our salvation are revealed. Through the pierced heart, the sorrowful mother, she gives a feminine aspect to that salvation mystery, that uh, just is is beautiful. And that's why the intercession here at the wedding at Cana is so important for. Uh, John to present. John wants to make sure we don't miss the significance of uh, Our Lady's intercession and Our Lady's uh, participation uh, in in Christ's salvific work. Exactly. Exactly. So we're on John two six through ten. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three measures apiece. Jesus saith to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And Jesus saith to them, Draw out now and carry to the chief steward of the feast, and they carried it. And when the chief steward had tasted water, made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the waiters knew who had drawn the water, the chief steward called the bridegroom, he saith to him, Every man at first setteth forth good wine, and when men have all have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. <clears throat> it's kind of interesting that these water pots were used for, for purification, ritual washings. So, washing the feet. So you got to think, uh, did the servants prepare their minds for a joke, seeing pots used to wash people's feet and what they contain being given to the chief steward to drink? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and absolutely. You, <laughs> yeah, you could be right. But I'm intrigued by another aspect of it as well. I, I see a parallel to life here. Um uh, the the life of, uh, of of a worldly man versus the life of a godly man, in in the sense that, you know, we 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 drink up the good wine first, and then the cheap stuff later, then the, then then the bad stuff later, uh, and that's how we become disenchanted. That's why marriages end because that original joy and elation that was there at the start fades out, it dies out. It takes more for us to try to 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 try to recapture that. And you see the contrast here is that Jesus gives us the best for last. 
And I'm convinced that John is making a theological point here, that yeah. the, the best wine comes at the end for a follower of, of, of Jesus. Yeah, definitely. Because we also see here a context of purification through the blood of Christ. First, modern to wine, later wine into his glorified blood, which through the sacraments purifies our souls. So Paul tells the Hebrews, and almost all things according to the law are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. In the imagery of purification jars, transubstantiation and a wedding feast is the atonement of sins through baptism and the blood of Christ, which is also our spiritual sustenance. Paul tells us the chalice of benediction which we bless is it not communion in the blood of Christ. And the bread which we break is it not partaking of the body of the Lord. For we being many are one bread, one body, all that partake of the one bread. He says, Behold Israel according to flesh. Are not they that eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? In this exchange, Paul is explaining to those who are already participating in the true Passover and wedding that we are truly united with God through his blood and body and blood. The good wine has been saved for last, or the old covenant is over, the new has begun in the heavenly reality. Yeah, and and again we see this contrast of the of the life well uh, suffered well uh that's rewarded at the end versus life squandered with ease and excess. And we see how in order to attract us to that worldly life, the uh, the devil sells us this, this lie that that the blood and the water, which we've already seen, are essential and of great effect. That they're just symbols. They're they're not. A, they're, you don't really receive the blood of Christ. The, and the water of baptism, it's just a symbol. So. Lost you. You there? I don't hear you, John. Can you hear me? Oh, there you go. Yeah. Do you want me to repeat my last point? Uh, start where you said it's just a symbol. Yeah, so the the devil tries to convince us that the water and the blood are just symbols, that they're of no effect, in order that we might take our eyes off of them and not be drawn to them and, and be drawn more more to the world. So it's this 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 whole larger point of life suffered well and rewarded at the end versus the life squandered with ease. And and it reminds us of what Paul says to Timothy of of of, of false church at the end times that would have a pretense of religion and yet deny its power. And that's what the devil has sold to us in the form of Protestantism, a pretense of religion. Only gets us wet. <laughs> right, baptism only gives us wet, and and the mm-hmm. and the Eucharist is is only uh, bread and grape juice. <laughs> and even though the Eucharist, as we have known for two thousand years, is the real presence of Christ before the Father as a true Passover for the general redemption of the world. And people don't even know it, 
But right. Satan is the father of lies and has them attacking their own general redemption. Incredible. Yeah. So we're at John 2, 11 and 12. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana at Galilee and manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they remained there not many days. Let me interject, uh, let me interject real quick here. So Cana is about 10 or 15 miles north of Nazareth up in the up in the hill country um and it's it's well um it's it's west of the sea of Galilee probably maybe 20 25 miles west of the sea of Galilee whereas Capernaum is on like the northern um northeastern side if you will of the sea of Galilee yeah, it's a. My understanding is it's a, Capernaum is was a, a fishing village on, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Mm-hmm. Uh, Capernaum could be described as a home base of Jesus. And uh, the name Capernaum is is derived from two words: Caper, which means village, and Nam, which means rest, consolation, shelter, or comfort. So, the the name probably came before Jesus, but uh, you know. Even, uh, uh, you know, where Jesus cursed the fig tree, that fig tree was specifically there for him to curse. So, right. yeah. so, so these words were created that would support exactly what he would do even in building up the image in our minds uh, through these words of, of the truth. Right. So Mary also, uh, although she uh, she says very few words, is uh, as we discuss, is an, an integral part of Jesus's ministry, and we also see Jesus as a mama's boy. Mary did not stay at home, but Jesus had her with him many times in the gospel narrative, uh, you know, almost all the way through his historical record, and probably even the situations where where she is not mentioned, uh, she was she was probably there. So. Also, the apostles believed in him before this time, or they would not have followed him. It says that the apostles believed in him in this verse. And, uh, most likely, they believed yeah. in him before the time, just to you know, clarify that. Right. You know, Luke, I'd never really taken time to really con- contemplate this until I was reading your notes, but, but it struck me. John wrote this in the very last years of his life, near the end of the first century, probably around 96 A.D., somewhere around there. Now, think about this. He would have been writing this in utter loneliness because not only was every so-called brother of Jesus dead, but so were all of the other apostles. By the time that John wrote this, he hadn't seen Mary in more than 50 years. He hadn't seen Jesus in more than 60 years. And that look at the detail and specif- uh, specific, you know what word I'm trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> how, yeah how specific <laughs> everything, there's just so certain words that are just hard for me to say. The, the detail and how specific it is is pretty remarkable considering that he's half a century or more removed from these events. 
And in addition, his his gospel is not part of the synoptic gospels. His gospel is, I think, it is very much influenced from his earlier vision in Revelation. Yeah, his gospel, the image of Revelation, is also the image of the Holy Mass. And as he's looking back on this on these events, he's probably melding the two together in his mind spiritually. I, I agree. Uh, you know, you and I both uh, both believe that the that the vision that he had that uh, that the Book of Revelation comes from occurred in 68 A.D. Uh, and so this is a book that's written some 30 years later. And even Dr. Scott Hahn has said that that uh, John's understanding of the nuances of the Greek language had dramatically improved in that time. So it shows. They advanced in the subtleties of the Greek language. But I think that he was able to, like you said, take all of the visions because, you know, in, in Revelation, he's writing down what he saw. He's writing down these visions he had. He was literally taken up into heaven. And yet 30 years later, now he's showing us, okay, so this is what it means. This is what all what, of these what things. What he means the lamb is. Yeah, right. So we're at John two thirteen through 17. And the past of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple them that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made, uh, as it were, a scourge of little cords, he drove them all out of the temple, the sheep also and the oxen and the money of the changers. He poured out and the tables he overthrew. And to them that sold doves, he said, Take these things hence, and make not the house of my father a house of traffic. And his disciples remembered. Uh, where am I at? Okay, but remembered that it was written, The zeal of thy house hath eaten me up. After John shows us that Jesus is the Word of God uh, uh, made flesh, the Son of God and the son of man, the Messiah King, glorified a wedding feast. He mentions the Passover, and the true Passover includes transubstantiation in the Holy Mass. So he then shows us his authority and his anger against those who misuse the Old Covenant for personal gain. Uh, the money changers were committing uh, usury and making interest off the poor for animals that were needed for the temple sacrifices. Most of those who would borrow money for the sacrifices would be poor. So let's go to Haddock's commentary to get uh, some more insight into this incident. And Haddock starts at verse 15. He drove them all out of the temple. According to St. Chrysostom, this casting out was different from that which is there related. How could this carpenter, Joseph, whose divinity was yet unknown to the people, succeed in expelling so great a multitude from the temple. There's undoubtedly something divine in this whole conduct and appearance, which deterred all from making resistance. The evangelist seems to insinuate this by putting the words, the house of my father, into our Savior's mouth, which was making himself immediately the Son of God. This made origin consider this miracle in overcoming the unruly dispositions of so many, 
as a superior manifestation of what he had shown in changing the nature of water at Cana. Jesus Christ here shows the respect he requires should be shown to the temple of the God. And St. Paul, speaking of the feigners of God's church, saith, if any man defile the temple of God, him will God destroy, which is may be understood of the soul of man, which is the living temple of the living God. Yeah, you know, again, this is one of those things that I'd, I'd never really considered this until I read your notes, but this, it makes a lot of sense that uh, the inside of Jesus' rage here as, as a miraculous divine manifestation, uh, almost a divine manifestation of the wrath of God from above, um, it is one I've never heard before, but it's it's very fascinating and very compelling. Okay, we'll move on to John two eighteen through twenty-five. <clears throat> the Jews therefore answered and said to him, "What sign dost thou show us, unto, uh, seeing thou dost do these things?" Jesus answered and said to them, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up." The Jews then said, "Six and." was this temple in building and wilt thou raise it up in three days but he spoke of the temple of his body when therefore he was risen again from the dead his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had said now when he was at Jerusalem at the Pash upon the festival day many believed in his name seeing his signs which he did but Jesus did not trust himself unto for that he knew all men. And because he needed not that any should give testimony of man, for he knew what was in man. So at the Passover, many believed in his name. His name is salvation. If you remember when we were in the Gospel of Matthew, the Pharisees, in order to have Jesus put to death, lied and said that Jesus said he would destroy the physical temple, uh, even though there was truth here that they were not privy to. It was still a lie. They did not know that the temple would be destroyed in 70 AD. The Pharisees said, uh, the Jews then said, six and 40 years was this temple in building, and wilt thou raise it up in three days? So to this, Haddox responds and uh, responding to verse 20, six and 40 years, this many understand that the time this the second temple was building from the Edict of Cyrus to the sixth year of Darius. Others of the enlarging and the beautifying of the temple, which was begun by Herod the Great, 46 years before the Jews spoke this to our Savior. Interpreters are much embarrassed by these words as the building of the temple, which then existed, had been finished in much less than 46 years. Herod renewed the temple from the foundations and spent in that work only nine half it was begun 46 years before the first pass at which our savior appeared but this prince according to josephus continued to make the new building and embellishments to the very time in which the jews uttered these words it is now 46 years yeah the the jewish uh the magazine jewishmag.com gives us a little insight in this that it actually describes the enhancements and embellishments that you talked about as continuing for 80 years from the time that they were initiated 
and being completed in 64 AD. So that would mean that um, it was indeed 46 years in the 15th year of Tiberius, as if you're counting, as you said, these enhancements and embellishments. So that would be the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, which would be 30 AD. This is what Luke asserts. And there's been some speculation um, that the Eastern Gate was one of the first things that they worked on, which is interesting because the Eastern Gate is the gate that only the king could enter through. And the beginning of the Eastern Gate, the beginning of the work on the Eastern Gate would have started in 16 B.C., which probably coincides with the birth of the Virgin Mary. So <laughs> interesting Interesting parallel there. Where you're going with that? Yeah, interesting parallel there. The gate by which only the king can enter. <laughs> this gate will be shut. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. It just it just builds and builds and builds. You know. Yep. Sometimes it does. I just I just, I just gotta get teared up when 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 I see these things, even when I'm reading them. You know. Yeah. What a what a unsearchable god. Uh, it's it's such a paradoxical thing that the more you learn, the more you realize, um, you know, there, there's a line in the, the line, the witch in the wardrobe, where uh, Aslan, who uh, is the lion that represents Jesus, um, says, the more you understand me, the bigger I become. And it's just, it's like the analogy that I was using of, of, of the Atlantic Ocean. You know, I, I think I have some conception of what the Atlantic Ocean is until I start to see it from a, from a, from a higher or deeper perspective. And then I realize that it's, it's bigger than I could possibly imagine. It's that same kind of thing. Exactly. So we're in John chapter three now man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, thou art come a teacher from God, for no man can do these signs which thou dost unless God be with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Amen, amen, I say to thee, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God or enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Nicodemus saith to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus answered, amen, amen, I say to thee, unless a man be born again of water and the Holy Ghost, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Oh, we're going to get into it now. Mm-hmm. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, or that which is born of Adam, as opposed to being born again in Christ Jesus. Paul says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and by sin death, and so death passed upon all men, in whom all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed, when the law was not. But death reigned from Adam unto Moses, even over them also who have not sinned after the similitude of the transgression of Adam, who was a figure of him who was to come. Now, Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus by night, perhaps because he was honestly inquiring of Jesus and was a bit timid and did not want to involve the other Pharisees. 
he, as a rabbi, which means teacher, addressed Jesus as a teacher from the one God. He also obviously had knowledge, uh, direct or otherwise, of, of the miracles Jesus was performing. And most likely the words that he was the son of God and the son of man prophesied in the book of Daniel. So it also appears that he is willing to commit himself to uh, uh, our, uh, when it comes to what he sees in Jesus. So Jesus used this Pharisee to convey one of the most important aspects a foundational aspect of our our faith. Jesus answered and said, Amen, amen, I see to, to thee, lest a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So I've addressed this in the past, but it's very important when it comes to developing a clear vision of Scripture and the New Covenant. Protestants mistakenly think that when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God here, he is talking about the heaven we go to when we die. This is not the thinking of the first century Jews who brought their faith to fruition in Christianity. If Jesus says that Satan plants weeds in the wheat in the kingdom, then this kingdom cannot be the eternal state of heaven. The kingdom of God is the supreme sacrament of the church on earth as it is in heaven. It is also the mystical body of Christ perpetuated through time by the sacraments. So in order to truly see the deeper nature of scripture, when Paul, writing to the church of the baptized, says, do you not know that you are the body of Christ? As a Christian, we are called to believe him. The body of Christ is not a metaphor, but a heavenly reality. And you must vision the spiritual body with Christ as head of the body and our high priest mediator, not of just prayer, but mediator to the Father of the entire new covenant. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 28, but if I, uh, I, by the Spirit of God, cast out devils, then is the kingdom of God come upon you. But through being born again, as Second Peter 1 explains, those who entered into the promise of Abraham fulfilled are divinized. And as Paul tells us in Romans 9, through the promise we have from God, we become not of this world, but in the world. <clears throat> Jesus tells us later in John 15, if you had been of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. <clears throat> so those who long for the kingdom of heaven as prophecy to be fulfilled, they were not thinking about securing a place. The phrase kingdom of heaven, rule of heaven brought to bear on earth. Mount Zion, to hey, which prophecy said, go yeah. ahead. Uh, you broke up a little bit there, so could you just uh, repeat again, starting with, so those who long for, and continue from there. Well, for for so those who long for the kingdom of heaven as prophecy to be fulfilled, they were not thinking about securing a place in the heaven above. The first heaven refers to the rule of heaven brought to bear on earth. Mount Zion, to which, as prophecy says, we go up to learn the ways of God. It refers to the rule of heaven brought to bear on earth. Therefore, at every holy mass, we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus tells us whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven. So who are those who are not of the world? Those who have been born again through baptism into the body of Christ, divinized and made the family of God. Therefore, Paul tells us in Romans 9, 
not as though the word of God is miscarried, for all are not Israelites that are of Israel. Neither are all they that are the seed of Abraham children, but in Isaac shall they seed be called. That is to say, not they are the children of the flesh or the children of God, but they are the children of the promise are accounted for the seed. This is the word of the promise. And in Galatians 3, he tells us, for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized in Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There's neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you are the seed of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. And how did Peter say we entered the promise of Abraham filled? We look at Acts 3.19. He said, be penitent, therefore be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. And how are these sins blotted out? Peter tells the crowds at Pentecost, do penance and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He refers to the same baptism in the context of being purged of past sins in 2 Peter 1, where he says, For if these things be with you and abound, they will make you to be neither empty nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he that hath not these things with him is blind and groping, having forgotten that he was purged of his old sins. Wherefore, brethren, labor the more, that by good works you may make sure your calling and election. For doing these things you shall not sin at any time. For so in the end of your end shall be ministered to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's explained to us that we're already in the kingdom of God. And through good works in this context, charity, which is being Christ a man, we shall secure an eternal entrance into the kingdom. The same elect he calls the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood, that offers spiritual sacrifices worthy of God, with participation with the hosts of heaven as the body and the true Passover for the general redemption of the world. Calvin was way off on election and predestination. We are not elected and predestined to heaven or hell. We are predestined because we were already chosen to enter the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood, that participates in the general redemption. A royal priesthood is not a priesthood without participation in a priestly function. For those who think baptism only gets you wet, this diabolical thinking separated you from the new covenant. You cannot be born again of water and spirit, divinized, given entrance into the family of God as the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood, outside of baptism. This was the faith of the early church, and even Calvin and Luther believed in the necessity of baptism. We should also understand that different apostles use the word kingdom of God and kingdom of God interchangeably, so we must think the same. Uh we look at one of the church fathers, Ambrose of Milan, uh, wrote, It is a good thing to be in the kingdom of Christ, so that Christ may be with us. As he himself says, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And Ambrose also wrote, Here we are the kingdom of Christ, and in Christ's kingdom, here we will be in the kingdom of God, where the Trinity will reign together. And Augustine uh, takes up on this. These things you do not understand because of the prophet said, 
instructed in the kingdom of heaven. That is in the true Catholic Church of Christ. Augustine uh, in another area. For although at times the church, even that which is at it this time, is called the kingdom of heaven, certainly it is so called for this end, because it is being gathered together for our future eternal life. <clears throat> also right after showing us a precursor to the wedding feast of the Lamb and the Holy Mass, what is, what is John doing here? So he is showing us the preparation of the bride. Paul says, husbands, love your wives, as Christ also loved the church and delivered himself up for it, that he may sanctify it, cleansing it by the lover of the word of life, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So also ought men to love their wives as their bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, as also Christ does the, because we are members of him. Mystical body Christ is a reality of his flesh and of his bones. For this shall a man leave his mother, and mother and leave, shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be two in one flesh. This is a great sacrament, but I speak of Christ in the church, Paul says. So the cleansing of the bride before the wedding by the laver of the word of life, the laver before the veil, which the priest needed to wash in before they entered the veil, which Paul referred to as the flesh of Christ. Egyptians 5 here, uh, Ephesians 5 here, expressing the sin of Titus 3, 5, where Paul tells us, but when the goodness and kindness of, of God our Savior appeared, not by the works of justice we have done, but according to the mercy, he saved us by the laver of regeneration and renovation of the Holy Ghost, whom we have poured forth upon us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we may be heirs according to the hope of everlasting life. It is a faithful saying, and these I will have the affirmed constantly, that they who believe in God be careful to excel in good works. So, to finish this up, we do not come into the body of Christ, and we are not expiated from original sin, which the bride must have through our own justice, uh, 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 through our own justices, but not through our own justice, but by the true law of regeneration that gives entrance to the flesh. Therefore, Paul says the Hebrews, having therefore, brethren, a confidence in entering the holies by the blood of Christ, a new and living way which he, had get, which he had dedicated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in fullness of faith, having our bodies sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in water. This is being born again. Protestants who do not receive a proper baptism are completely separated from the gifts of the new covenant and are not in obedience to God. Paul explains the lava regeneration that's in front of the veil. You wash in the lava before you enter the veil, which is the flesh of Christ in the church. Right. It's becoming very clear that John is teaching us the basic theology that we must know as Christians. That's what, that's what he's doing here. In chapter 1, he gives us a beautiful presentation of the Trinity, 
In chapter 2, we're shown how recourse to his mother is the ordinary means of supplication. And now here in chapter 3, we're shown baptism as the first essential step in initiation. But he's following a formula here. It's, it's, almost like, it's almost like you could say the Gospel of John is the first catechism. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's a very deep one at that. <laughs> yeah. So we're at John 3, 7 through 16. When or not that I said to thee, you must be born again, the Spirit breatheth where he will, and thou hearest his voice. But thou knowest not whence he cometh, and whether he goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be done? Jesus answered, Art thou a master in Israel, and knowest not these things? Amen, I say to thee, that we speak what we know, and we testify what we have seen, and you receive not our testimony. If I have spoken to you earthly things, and you believe not, how will you believe if I shall speak to you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended into heaven, but he that descended from heaven, the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believeth in him may not perish, but have life everlasting. For God so loved the world as to give his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in him may, may not perish, but everlasting life. Uh, we'll start looking at these verses through Haddock's commentary. Uh, Haddock starts at verse 8. It says, The Spirit breatheth where he will. The often translation has the wind. And so it expound, it's expounded by St. Chrysostom and St. Cyril on this uh, verse, as if Christ compared the motions of the Holy Ghost to the wind, of which men can give so little account whence it comes or whether it goes. Yet many others, as St. Augustine and Ambrose and uh, St. Gregory, understood this expression of the Holy Ghost, of whom it can only be properly said that he breatheth where he will, and knoweth not these, this is a baptism given by in a visible manner, and you understand not how will you comprehend the greater and heavenly things if I speak of them. Many passages, both in the law and the prophets, implied this doctrine of regeneration for what else can be the meaning of the circumcision of the heart commanded by Moses, of the renewal of a clean and right spirit, of God giving his people a new heart and a new spirit. But the Pharisees, taken up with their rites and traditions, paid little attention to the spiritual things John 3, 5, Jesus answers, Very verily I say to you, unto you, except a man be born of the spirit, uh, water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The expression, amen, artis in Greek, means anyone at all. So hence this text applies to both babes and uh, the, through, through adults through old age. Through the faith of the parents, infants are brought into the kingdom of heaven, the family of God. We bring our baptized infants to the Holy Mass, the true Passover, where they share in the graces that come to us from heaven. Job says, who can make him clean that is conceived an unclean seed is not thou who only art. David says, for behold, I was conceived in iniquities and in sins my mother conceived me. 
Psalm 61, 5, he says, sprinkle me with hyssop and I will be made whiter than snow. This imagery of the healing plant of hyssop is tight for baptism to come. Paul told us, for by a man came death, one man came death, and by a man the resurrection of the dead. Uh, from the beginning of Christianity, baptism was always understood as the grace given freely of destruction of original sin through the blood of the Christ and entrance into the kingdom. God's church on earth that is united to the mystical body in heaven, as we see in Hebrews 12:22, It is entrance into the promise that become uh, fulfilled, becoming the chosen people, the holy nation, set apart for God, the royal priesthood that offers spiritual sacrifice to the Father. It's amazing how some have diluted baptism uh, from from belief and separated it from the cross. When Jesus is taking great pains here to show Nicodemus that baptism, belief, and the cross are all inseparable. They're all intertwined. That's why, why Jesus is saying to Nicodemus in explaining baptism says that as the serpent was raised up in the desert by Moses, so will the Son of Man be raised up. So this this idea of, of, of it's actually a participation in the sacrifice of Christ. And our Protestant brothers and sisters don't don't get that. They separated. Jesus did everything, I do nothing, and uh, you know, baptism and, and all the rest are just are just symbols. They're not symbols, they're actual participation in the work of, in the redemptive work of Christ. Well, when you created a totally different construct of even word structure for the main purpose of a separation from the Catholic Church, that is the construct you, you look at Scripture through. If you, you don't know, you never experienced Catholicism. That's the only thing you see Scripture through. <clears throat> Example, we hear the words, even him shall have everlasting life. So this is an example where Protestants use a literalist interpretation if it goes along with the image they want to believe. Here it is much more logical to see the, the literal interpretation, which is also the most honest approach. To say that all you have to do is believe contradicts hundreds of scriptures. So <clears throat> we have to think like a first century Jewish convert who never understood the concept of belief outside obedience to the faith in a covenant relationship with God. So if the the old covenant belief or, or faith was encompassed in living in obedience to the faith of the entire covenant, and it is no different in the new covenant, Paul explains that it is his job to bring about obedience to the faith. So he who believes will be saved is better understood as he who has the faith to adhere to and live the new covenant In Jesus just got through explaining how we enter the kingdom through being born again of water and spirit. Places in the context of baptism where he who believes is purged of past sins, he is saved from original sin through baptism into Christ Jesus. This baptism, therefore, is redemption, justification before God, sealing and grace given freely, and belief begins through the Holy Spirit leading one to baptism, where they are saved and enter the one church of one doctrine established at Pentecost. Yeah. 
So let me give an illustration of what Luke is saying here. Let's let's just let's just give an illustration by looking at the president of the United States. Okay. Now a person can say that he believes that Joe Biden is the president. He could say that he believes that he was duly elected in 2020. He could even go so far as to say that he voted for him. And he could say all of this, and still today, looking at the problems our nation is facing, he could come to the conclusion that he cannot believe in Biden's strategy for what is best best for our nation. Well, if you don't believe in the agenda, you may have a belief of a person, but you don't believe in the person. Your actions betray your words. And, and this is what happens if you say that you uh, believe in faith alone, and you believe that you're justified by faith alone, well, then what you're saying is you don't believe that you have to put your faith and trust in Jesus. And your faith and trust in Jesus can only be demonstrated. It can't be, uh, words are not, are not sufficient. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, I mean, it's like this idea of saying I'm, spir- I'm spiritual, not religious. <clears throat> well, right. the religion actually comes from a Latin root word of, of relationship. And so this relationship with God, there's commitment to a relationship. And the commitment is expressed in obedience to God. So you cannot separate spirituality from religion because you know, they're almost the same thing. One is showing our acts of love for God in obedience to the faith, and the other one is our faith. So uh, to be spiritual and not religious is simply pagan. Right. So we're at John 3.17. For God sent not his son into the world to judge the world, that the world may, may be saved by him. He that believeth in him is not judged, but he that doth not believe is already judged, because he believeth not in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, because the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their works were evil. For everyone that doth evil hateth the light, and cometh not to the light, that his works may not be reproved. But he that doth truth cometh to the light, that his works may be made manifest, because they are done in God. So Jesus is still addressing uh, the Pharisee Nicodemus here, who is thinking through a carnal understanding, not a spiritual one. Jesus ups the ante of, of, of his faith here by proclaiming that he is the son of God, whom we must believe in, uh, just like this same son of God when he said, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink, gave Christians an article of faith that you must believe in. This is, this is spirit and religion. If you fail in achieving this level of belief, then you fall in obedience to the faith of, of the new, you, you fail in obedience to the faith of the new covenant, which begins with belief that through our baptism, we are born again of water and spirit in this sacramental nature, not of what Nicodemus was thinking. What does Jesus mean when he says, he that believeth in him is not judged, 
but he that doth not believe is already judged, because he believeth not in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Are we not baptized in the name singular of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Does not Paul say, Know ye not that the unjust shall not possess the kingdom of God? Do not fornicators, nor adulterers, nor, uh, nor the effeminate, nor liars with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor railers, nor extortioners shall possess the kingdom of God. And some of you were, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. This is all baptism in the name of the, our Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. We are sanctified and justified in the name. The name of the Trinity is in the formula of a proper baptism. So Jesus says, but he that doth not believe is already judged because he believeth not in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We have to believe in the whole covenant. Those who do not believe in the sacrament of baptism, because without baptism you are separated from being open to all of the sanctifying grace God has given us, including the narrow road of the sacrament of life, which includes the mercy of confession and absolution. How can you have done evil come into the light without the redemption and justification and sanctification of being born again, truly. And what does coming into this light do? What it does includes giving our works in Christ Jesus edification. Jesus says, but he that doth truth cometh to the light that his works may be made manifest because they are done in God. Works done in God and unconditional love are an extension of God's work through us. So Jesus has no hands now but ours, no voice now but ours. Paul says, it is not now I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The least you do to my brothers that you do unto me. Jesus says, not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. It doth the will of my Father who is in heaven. He shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have you not prophesied in thy name and cast out devils in thy name and done then many miracles in thy name? And then will I can profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Why did he say even if you prophesied, even if you cast out devils, even if you do miracles? Because Satan is very, very dangerous and has a preternatural intelligence that we cannot match wits with, nor ability. He can mimic all three of these things to keep people in a heretical faith by using their own sense of righteousness in their fallen nature of ego against them. Therefore, God established in the narrow road of the sacrament a new covenant lived in a practice of humility as love for Christ and obedience to the faith. If someone who's not baptized goes to Mass his soul is not prepared for the graces of the Holy Mass. Since he is still a child of the flesh, of Adam, and not of the quickening spirit of Christ, then his soul is not in the flesh of Christ as Christ's body, and he is not connected to the heavenly event that occurs in the Holy Mass. With every Holy Mass, this even includes the cleansing of venial sins. But Paul says, Jesus presents his body the church the bride without spot or wrinkle before the father. 
Paul said, husbands, love your wives, as Christ also loved the church and delivered himself up for it. That he may sanctify it, cleansing it by the laver of the word of life, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. The first cleansing is of the laver, and yet we continue to sin after the laver of baptism. Therefore, the blood of Christ cleanses the bride at every holy mass, which Paul is showing the spiritual imagery of in Hebrews 12:22, where he expresses that we have come to Jesus, mediator of the new covenant, and a sprinkling of blood that speaks better than that of Abel. Uh, this is really, really neat. In, in the book, uh, The Incredible Mass, we read, to this point, we have been inquiring in what way the precious blood of Christ is shed in holy mass. We shall now see how it is sprinkled, for we know that as the precious blood of Christ is shed when Mass is celebrated, so it is likewise sprinkled upon all who are present and poured out upon their souls. Of this we have a clear type in the Old Testament, to which St. Paul refers when he says how Moses sprinkled the blood of calves and goats upon all the people, saying, this is the blood of the Testament which God to you. The words Christ employed when he consecrated the chalice of the Last Supper are almost identical. This is the New Testament in my blood. St. Paul adds in the passage already quoted, it is necessary, therefore, that the patterns of the heavenly things should be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. By this he meant to say, the Jewish synagogue, which was a type of the Catholic Church, was cleansed sprinkling the blood of calves and goats, whereas the Catholic Church is cleansed by the blood of the Lamb of God. Now, in order that anything be cleansed, either with blood or with water, it must be sprinkled or moistened with blood or water. Thus, if our souls are cleansed by the blood of Christ in the Mass, they must be sprinkled therewith, as we shall now proceed to show. St. Chrysostom says, Thou seest that Christ is emulated in the Mass, that people present are sprinkled and marked with the crimson blood from his veins. In this passage, this great doctor of the church expresses, expressly asserts that in Holy Mass, the blood of Christ is not merely poured out for us, but poured out upon us. This is works of Christ Jesus participating in the general redemption of, of the world here. Now, John shows us the word made flesh who becomes the bride, becomes the bridegroom. The bride who's prepared for the wedding through baptism. Wrinkle me with hyssop, and I will be made whiter than snow. John leads us through the imagery of a wedding feast and transubstantiation of water into wine to the wedding feast of the Lamb, where the groom has saved the best wine for last, where we become new wineskins to be filled with new wine, the blood of Christ. Man and woman shall become one flesh. God becomes one flesh. Yeah, so let me emphasize again. He who believes in him, not of him. The demons believed of him, but they didn't believe in him. And you can only demonstrate belief in him by obedience. Words are insufficient. So, like Luke is walking us through all of this, you must be baptized. You must participate in the, in the, in the Holy Mass. You must participate in the covenant. 
it's something that has to be participated in. And that participation, that obedience, is how we prove the faith that we allege we have. James says in chapter 2 of his epistle, you say that you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. It's right there. I mean, that's that's it in black and white. How can you claim to have belief in a covenantal relationship without demonstrating that you're that you adhere and believe in the covenant? It's just it's just reason, you know. It's just choosing yeah. reason. So at John three twenty two, after these Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judah, Judea, and there he abode with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Enon near Salim, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. Now, this baptism was a baptism of repentance for the Jews, not the baptism in the Trinity that came into the world at Pentecost. This was a baptism of preparation. And John 4 tells us that Jesus did not baptize, but his apostles did the baptizing like John was doing. Uh, it appears that the apostles and John the Baptist were baptizing in the same neighborhood. Uh, Salim is on the west coast of the Jordan. And so here we see the baptism of John the Baptist as a type, and we see the baptism uh, that followed Jesus' baptism in the Jordan as fulfillment. Yes. So John three twenty four, For John was not yet cast into prison, and there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews concerning purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond the Jordan, to whom thou gavest testimony, behold, he baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man cannot receive anything unless it be given him from heaven. You yourselves do bear me witness that I said that I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Here we go, from the wedding to the, to the groom. Mm-hmm. But he that the friend of the bridegroom, who standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth with joy because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. As we have discussed, the groom prepares the bride. And here the best man for the wedding rejoices in the coming of the groom and the wedding. He first met the bridegroom while he was still in the womb, when he leapt for joy, as David did when he danced before the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, for more detail on this, Haddox tells us, starting at verse 29, He of whom you complain is the, is the bridegroom, and I am the bridegroom sent before to prepare his bride. That is to collect for him a church from all nations. The servants of the bridegroom do not rejoice in the same manner as his friend. I am his friend, and I rejoice with very great joy because of the bridegroom's voice. He must increase, and I must decrease, by which words the great precursor demonstrates to the world that not the least with regard to his master, his divine master, rankles in his heart, but on the contrary, 
that he should be happy to see all his followers desert him to run to Jesus Christ. He, Christ, must increase, not in virtue and perfection with which he is replenished, but in the opinion of the world when they begin to know him and believe in him. And in like manner, I must be diminished when they know how much he's above me. This idea that I must decrease and he must increase is not a message that's real popular with the world. Uh, def- definitely not. <laughs> Especially our world today. What's going on in the world is yep. crazy. Amen. John 3.31, he that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth, he is, and of the earth he speaketh. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God doth not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loveth the Son, and he hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth in the Son hath life everlasting, but he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now, he that comes from above, meaning Christ the Messiah, the Son of God, he that is of earth, meaning himself, uh, what he hath seen and heard, meaning of a perfect understanding, not by senses. Uh, he is God, therefore he has perfect understanding of himself beyond human comprehension uh, into infinity. Uh, again, we see this word belief that Protestants falsely interpret. He that believeth have eternal life. He that not believeth, not the Son, shall not see God. Yet belief is obedience to the faith of the new covenant which begins with baptism into Christ Jesus. So man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. These words include baptism now saves you. These words include my flesh is true food, blood to drink. They include do this in memory of me. They include if your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. They include, as the gospel of Matthew told us, a good man out of a good treasure bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that man shall shall speak, they shall render on account for it in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. This is obviously much more than the Protestant understanding of faith alone. Yeah, it sure is. And I don't know, I guess... I don't know why anyone would believe in faith alone, because this is the golden question, so to speak, that I ask people who, who espouse this belief. If, if God saved you, but he doesn't require a change, then what did he save you from and for what purpose? If God saved us from our sins so that we could continue to persist in our sins, that didn't seem to accomplish much. Go and sin no more. Right. There you go. All right, so we're through the first three chapters, the first two parts of uh, this book. 
and uh, we'll be back uh, on the 22nd, January 22nd, to continue with part three. Um, just a, a personal note, um, today is the birthday of my uh, brothers Fred and Mike, um, who would both be uh, 72 today. They're twins, and they, they both passed from this world in 2015, so um, it, I, I'd really appreciate it if you'd... Uh, dedicate the, the closing prayer to them, to Fred and Mike. Yeah, I, I feel for you, brother. I lost two brothers when I was uh, still a teenager. So I, I understand. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. The Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you, Luke. Have a great week, and I'll see you uh, next Monday. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.